You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to another episode of Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress. Hey, Joelle. Hi, Susan. Oh, we're alone, just you and me today. I am just now co-host. That's my new title. <laughs> and producer. Last, yes, and producer and stress coach and Becky's boss. <laughs> oh, you know, that's going to get edited out of here. <laughs> no, she, she has no authority. And, and you're a graduate student. Yeah. And what else are we going to add to you? Um, I, I think that's it right now. For right Crazy now. soon, probably. Because crazier? Yeah, crazier. Because? Well, when you deal with crazies. Oh, I thought you had something yeah. coming up that was in particular that was going to make you that way. No. Oh, okay. No, All just right. just <laughs> the, the radiation. <laughs> now, watch it. Yeah. Tread lightly. <laughs> yeah, it's been a busy week. I was in Yuma teaching uh, supervisors last week. Yeah. Because, you know, we got the contract first city in the country ever to contract with Under the Shield by themselves. And some new things in the works. We have lots of cool stuff coming up. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, it was a supervisor's class. It went really well and um, actually had the HR manager in there going, you know, that's a good idea. Some things she's saying. (laughs) Now, we'll see if they actually implement it. But they need to. Well, down on the border, those people. Listen, gang. There may be a wall going up, but Yuma and places are struggling right now. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I think we talked about it, right? But uh, on X or Twitter, whatever. Whatever we're calling it yeah, this week. Um, you know, Elon Musk went to go down to the border, and he's talking to, you know, the sheriffs and mayors and whoever and else. And Border Patrol. And yeah. as— as they're doing their interviews, it's just like gangs of people coming across, just like huge, gr- huge groups yes. coming across. They're like, yeah, like they're he's like, how is this possible? And like Border Patrol trying to explain. He's like, well, I have so, you know, X many people and it's over this huge territory. I have two people working today. Yeah. How are we supposed to like, oh, yeah. how are we supposed to get this done? I was like, ah. Oh. Wait till Elon Musk finds out about everything else, like well, the air marshals. Well, and then opposing that being shown is or crazies going, oh, the border's secure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. As it looks like fire ants coming across. But, yeah, it's uh, that's a group that we are honored to be down there with because, boy, do they need it. And we had a couple in there. One of our stress coaches from Yuma County Sheriff's Department was in there also. And we're headed back down there again. Uh, I think it's November 2nd. I go down and teach November 3rd for them again. And we'll be back and forth because we'll be doing all the stress coaches coaching for, for them. So we'll have to take you down to the – you'll have to go do a ride along with Border Patrol on the border. <laughs> that would be fun. It, it's an experience that everybody I should do. I, I'll put it to you that way. And uh, Cancer Update had another echo. So I'm back to treatment next Thursday. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Number four counting down. So December yes. 21st. We're almost done. Oh, hallelujah. Almost done. I, I'm just, I ain't got time for this stuff, Joelle. And then we can get back to eating some biscuits and gravy <laughs> and some cheesy grits and whatever else 
<laughs> we Southerners eat. They did laugh at me. I took my two books down. One is Butter My Butt and Call Me a Biscuit <laughs> with Southern sayings in it. And the other one was Bless Your Heart, You Freaking Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> They they don't understand me out here sometimes, so that was fun to have that. They could look things up if I said things they didn't understand. It would translate it for them. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, we have someone very near and dear to my heart on the podcast today, and we're just going to call him Todd, kind of like Madonna, and as Prince. we've talked about Prince and Sting and whatever. He's a he's a one name wonder. Let's put it that way. And gosh, <laughs> Todd, how long have we known each other? Uh, at least 30 years. Yeah, because you, were you at the police department when I started under the shield? Yes. Okay. Were you Were you in the academy or you were already out on the streets at that point? Uh, 92. 1992. All right, I was there in 93. So you, I, you came to my class. That's what I thought. Uh, that was you came, during. You came to my class and you were probably the best instructor because you didn't yell at us. <laughs> You didn't make us do push-ups. You didn't throw paper at us. <laughs> You're way too nice, I am too nice. I've changed. It has changed over the years. Well, and, and, the, and I tell you, the great thing was is, is Susan would talk smack about our leadership, <laughs> standing there in the academy, and we're all looking at each other like, what? <laughs> I would. Who is this lady? <laughs> to be fair, though, they did used to run back then. Oh, so yeah. They oh, probably didn't need to run more. Oh Well, they did. But again, um, yeah. So so what he's telling you is that I've just gotten worse with years because I would talk about the <laughs> command staff in the in their own academy now. And now I trash them everywhere. So. <laughs> I don't care. As we take pictures well, and with I them. think it, all of those are probably dead now anyway. Well, the main one especially. And I, I don't know, are we allowed to even say where you worked in those things? I guess. It was Montgomery. Yeah. The, mm. in, the good day, in the good old days of policing. Yes. Right. When you had a mayor that wore pearl-handled revolvers on each hip. <laughs> And, and he, he would come to roll call and do weapons inspection. <laughs> <laughs> he would. Until until a federal court made him stop. <laughs> yes. He went to every briefing, everyone, and a federal judge had to order him out. And then he'd go out, if he knew media was out, like there was a fire or something burning, he'd get out with a bullhorn and direct traffic and then ordered, uh, wasn't it a firefighter to give him his turnout gear and the firefighter wouldn't give it to him, so he fired him on the spot? <laughs> yeah, he... Um... He had his own uh, call number on the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I won't confirm or deny this, but <laughs> I, I have had interaction with him at three o'clock in the morning while working third shift patrol. Um, it's odd when you're in a part of the city where no one should be moving at three in the morning on a Wednesday night. Headlights pull up and you and your partner are like, who is this? <laughs> And the mayor shows up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he asks, is there a crime wave going on out here I don't know about? And you're like, well, uh, yes, sir, really there is. <laughs> well, and I always love the story that he would tell about the gangs and people that shot up his house or something. And it oh, actually yeah. turned out to be police officers. <laughs> well, yeah, that all ended when somebody shot his housekeeper's dog oh, that's right. because oh yeah we used to ride around and shoot stray dogs mm -hmm. uh from our cars <laughs> yeah i don't think you can do that anymore no. but um 
Yeah, somebody shot a dog, and it wasn't a stray. It was the mayor's housekeeper's dog. <laughs> so that came to an end. Yeah. Quick. But the mayor also had his personal, he had personal protection as well. And his wife did, too. His wife did, too. But he would drive his own car, and they'd have to follow him in an unmarked car everywhere. Yeah. Rather than driving him. You know, if, you're, if you're on third shift, you'd have to sit outside his house. Yes. With he, no reading material. And he had tried to sneak up and catch you sleeping. And if you yeah. were, you got five days off without pay. I'm still stuck on the stray dogs. Like, did you guys just have, like, a bunch of stray dogs out there? Let, like, what's going on with you southern people? You guys were just bored? Uh, hey, listen, you know. You do what you got to do. You, you got to keep things lively. I heard, I heard of the hogs over in in Houston or in Texas. They, You know, they kill their, the hogs. They make a whole sport out of it. I've never heard stray dogs. It's like the javelinas here. They were our version of the javelinas. You no, know, those those things are evil. They are evil. I agree with you. But <laughs> but these were dogs starving and you know out on the streets didn't need to be there. But yeah, those were those were some interesting times and the things that law enforcement, even supervisors, used to try to pull that um, they they pulled some interesting things. And part of it was probably Todd's fault. It was probably coming after him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, now I will say this though: the mayor, if you're involved in a shooting, he was there. Yes. He was there. He was supporting you. He'd come up, pat you on the back, and say, "Great job." Yep. Um, I'm behind you, and and there was no wavering on that. Yep. You were in the right until you were proved to be in the wrong. That's so true. He was he was there behind you. I tell you something else. He did that you will never find a mayor do anywhere probably in this country is he would come to the academy when your class is about to graduate and he'd do a final academy inspection and he'd walk person by person and ask them. And it was always the same question. It was really stupid. You know, someone puts their hands on you. What are you going to do? Well, he didn't want to hear some technical term. He just wanted to hear you say, I'm going to beat her. I'm going to beat their ass. Yep. Yep. And that's what he wanted. And that's what it was. I mean, that's kind of what it was. <laughs> well, I'll never forget the first academy that I was there. And I think it was day one. And he had them all out in the parking lot lined up. And he's walking among them and stuff. And I'm standing up on the little porch area. And I hear him say uh, something about his expectations and something. And he says, and if you don't like what I'm saying, there are two roads out of Montgomery, 65 and 85. <laughs> Pick your road. <laughs> And it went silent except Susan laughing. And one, of the, one of the sergeants or somebody literally opened the door and shoved me in the academy because I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And so you were there how long? Till 2000. And then where'd you go from there? Secret police. The secret. Yeah, he was one of those secret squirrel people. <laughs> and do we want to talk about that at all? I don't know. No, that generates too much. That, too many things come out of that. <laughs> yeah, but aren't you thankful you're not doing that now? Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> I was thankful when I had to look at friends that, you know, stood next to people like Obama and all mm -hmm. that. I mean. Yep. No. Yeah, no, I, no I'm with you. Because who was president when you were there? Uh, that was right in the transition to uh, W. Okay. That was what it, the whole hanging Chad, That's Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know that. Jo you got to remember, Joel's young. 
he, he might not have been oh, born yeah. back Al then. Al Gore invented the internet, in case you didn't know. Yeah, yeah no, I saw that on a meme before. Yeah, so. yeah well, he yeah. claimed yeah. it. He, he, he invented the internet about the same time he invented climate change. Yes. And so that was, you know... Fun he, times. He's got two great inventions. Yeah, <laughs> we give him full credit for it. Absolutely. As he rode around in so, his you know, 747. I, I thank him for the internet. <laughs> And I thank Elon Musk for getting me across the border the other day so I could come here and be with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he might not be lying. <laughs> and then you left that, and where did you go? Were you already in um, the military at that point anyway? Yeah, yeah. I, I went back into the intelligence community okay, and uh, started doing a lot of counterintelligence operations. And... and uh, started, uh, well, I went to my new home away from home in Afghanistan several times. Right. And so, we wound up teaching together. What year was that? Oh, I have no earthly idea. It had to be. Well, it was after 03 because I was already divorced. That's how life, I, I planned yeah. things out. And it was before 06. So was it between 2004, 2006 time frame? It was. Yep. Something like that. And we yeah, were because I was at I was at it had to have been because in 2005 I was at um, I was doing something then with the military you know, wasn't available. Yep. We but, yeah, you and I were teaching. Yeah, we taught in four year degree of Homeland Security and Public Safety. Mm. Yeah, I was teaching the criminal profiling fun class <laughs> and. Something else, and you were teaching the terrorism classes. I taught terrorism classes, and then I did kind of like an intro to criminal justice where it, it kind of gave them a, I don't know if you'd call it an eagle's eye view of just kind of across the board what to expect in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and had a mix of interesting students. Yes, we did. Everything from out of high school to people that were already in the field in yeah. law enforcement and fire. Yeah. And some that shouldn't have been in the field that were. Amen. We had one. Yeah. Remember our little guy that was claimed to have been the bodyguard for Louis Farrakhan. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, somebody yeah. else, he said, yeah, we, Todd and I were never buying that. So we didn't, we didn't ever buy into that theory yeah, that he yeah. was telling he, the truth. Uh, he, he was, he was interesting. He was. I also had one, had one that wanted to be a cop, but he had like several prior felonies. I found out I gave him zeros on two papers because he basically plagiarized word for word. And it was stuff that I had already read. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is all familiar to me. So I went back and found the book and brought it into him. And I said, did you, did you reference this book? And he goes, yeah, that's the book I used. I said, the book you used? He goes, yeah, I read my paper from that book. I said, oh, I understand. <laughs> hey, hey. Your paper is the book. <laughs> but at least it wasn't something you had written. That would have been even That's better. Oh, hey, listen, I would have taken that. I would have given him an A had he written something I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and then Todd leaves, and I get to teach international and domestic terrorism. God. <laughs> it's like, yeah, thanks a lot, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was great. Were you were you on the list at the time of people to look out for? No, not yet. But Todd, I am working. That's my new bucket list things. I want to be on the not the no fly list. I want to be on the terrorist watch list. Oh, that that seems to be easy nowadays. Um, I'm I'm there with you. I want to I want to be banned from Facebook and all those places. Mm -hmm. 
and be on the terrorist watch list. Mm -hmm. I actually want these knuckleheads to devote all their resources to follow me around town. Hey, it'll be the safest I will flights. Play games with them. Yeah, well, but I mean, think about your planes. It those will, yeah. our our flights will be the safest flights ever. Yeah, bring it yeah. on. And I said, then I'm gonna call it a date. I'll take the fams to dinner, and I'll say I had a date tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually, I used to. I haven't done it anymore cause in a while because I haven't flown in a while. But I'd walk by and touch them and go, "Hey, man, good to see you." Mm -hmm. And they kind of give me this look like. What? <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty obvious. Yeah, they were, especially yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we actually do stress coaching for them. They, The fams are part of us. They probably need it. They do. There, There's a whole lot of stuff going on there. And, uh, yeah, I'll have to send you some links to listen to of our good friend, Sonia. Uh, well, they're I, helping secure the border now. They are. They're doing good that work. Is, they are TDY hey. at the border. Isn't that a good no, plan? That's what you need. Yeah, no vest, no nothing, but they're t they're basically Uber Eats and what else did Sonia <laughs> yeah, tell like us? Uber Eats and DoorDash for Border yes. Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I have to send you the links for our friend Sonia Labosco Hightower, who is the uh, executive director for their national council for the fams. Yeah. yeah. And she's become a good friend and she's a Biden whistleblower. And uh, oh, yeah, you good. gotta you gotta hear her stuff, but um, so really you, and then you finished up, you left there, you stayed in the military full time, right? Yeah. And well, then, and, and I was in with another agency for a while, you know, that nice one up there in Virginia that no one really knows about. Oh yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. And now you're telling me you were a magistrate. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> How'd that yeah. happen? The cops loved it. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> well, it, it, it happened kind of on accident. Um, Stacy found Stacy saw the job advertised with the city, and she's like, "You could do that." And I was like, "Yeah, probably so." So I went and applied and got hired. That's funny. See the yeah. magistrates. Explain to Joel how the magistrates work up there because we don't have those out here. No, that sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. So, <laughs> yeah, and it was nothing like I was used to either. But uh, basically, if they were going to do a misdemeanor arrest, they'd bring their complaint to us and we'd review it and then swear them to it. And they'd do the arrest. They brought us all their tickets because in Alabama, traffic tickets have to be sworn to by a magistrate. So they they'd come and swear to all their tickets. Um, they would call if they were out on something and say, hey, I got this going on. What you know, what charge is best for this person for bring them into jail? So it's it like was, a judge. It was interesting. It it's, was interesting. I mean, we'd help them out, um, so they didn't bring somebody in and it get tossed out when they got to court. Right. But of course, you got so many progressives now that they throw most of the stuff out anyway. Yeah. And were you finding that the problem even where you were in Alabama? Yeah, they would do. The judges would do it. Um, and you know, it, it's there. There's some problems there with a lot of what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's some backdoor racket going on with some of these defense attorneys that are in private practice, not public defenders, but the ones that are in practice. Yep. There's the and and this is this is the rumor that's been going on. It's been, I mean, I've heard it from officers, I've heard it from other attorneys, prosecutors. Like there's kickbacks going on, especially on DUI cases. Jeez. 
you know, because I remember remember that guy, that big time attorney that used to come to Montgomery all the time and he got everybody off. Yeah, but I've forgotten uh, what his name was. I mean, he was so good. Um, we had the guy that uh, we stopped him for DUI, had all the beer cans in his truck and they were still cold. I mean, he was guzzling them. They were cold, swerving, swerving all over the road. I mean, this dude was derunk <laughs> and went to jail. This this guy gets him off because he, he first he pleads him guilty and then appeals it so he can get a jury trial. And in the jury trial, he's telling the jury that this man had just lost his prize dog. And I I, I want to say it was some prize retriever or something like that, like won all these field trials and all this. And he was out looking for it. Wait a minute. It wasn't one y'all shot, was it? I was going to ask no, that. No, <laughs> that was no. my question. Because that, that, that would have been some funny irony there. <laughs> True. <laughs> no, but he, that's, he, 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 he made them believe that that's why he was going from one side of the road to the other. He was calling this dog. And who <laughs> grieving for a lost prize dog would not drink while they're grieving? Well, of course. Oh, wow. And this dude gets off. Wow. He also got a school teacher off. We had her in the middle of an intersection with a mixed drink in the cup holder, foot on the brake, car in drive, passed out, <laughs> and he gets her off. What'd she lose? Good. Huh? What'd she lose? A prize peacock or something? <laughs> yeah, who knows? She was a school teacher, so maybe her students drove her crazy. Uh, probably. You guys are really weird with dogs. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> So, Todd, give us your kind of overall take. You've got a lot of experience from the military side, from the law enforcement side, from magistrate side, from teaching side, all of that stuff. Give us your uh, opinion of what in the world has gone wrong in this world. (laughs) You know, I don't know if there's one thing. One thing that I've noticed, at least here where I am, Mm -hmm. is officers on the street have lost the ability to talk to people. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to talk to people. And a lot of that comes from their academy time and how they're trained. Mm-hmm. You know, they I know they spend a lot of time here teaching them to fight. And I'm like, that's great and wonderful. But if I can't talk to somebody, then yeah, I'm going to get in a fight. But if I can talk to you, I don't have to fight. Okay. And, and they just haven't learned to talk to people. And, and I think a, a recent example of where that went south was over in a city by us where they just shot this guy and killed him when simply talking to him probably would have resolved all of that. When was this recent? Yeah, this has been within the last week. Oh, okay. um, guys getting his car repoed. So, you know, repo man comes in the dead of night. Mm-hmm. Guy comes out, points a gun at the repo man. He's like, you're not taking my car. Guy leaves, comes back. But he calls police and says, hey, I just had a gun put in my face. I'm trying to repo this car. Comes back. Man comes out again. Police are standing out there. And rather than talking to the guy, and I don't know if he raised this pistol at the guys or not, but they just <laughs> took it upon themselves to fire multiple rounds and kill this dude when they probably could have talked their way out of it. I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback anybody shooting sure. because I wasn't there and sure. don't know. Sure. Um, but bottom line is you can talk to people and resolve a lot faster than you can 
putting your hands on. You know, it's funny, though, because this is something like we've heard actually on the podcast uh, from multiple retired mm-hmm. officers is, you know, there's like this stigma of old policing, right? You know, being a little more hardcore or whatever. But it's like, yeah, but we're able to talk to people and able sure. to calm them down where nowadays it's just so quick. And I don't know. Do you think that's because like the tensions nowadays or do you think it, it starts at the academy? Well, I think it comes from the generation, too, of texting. Everything's done genera- email and text. Yeah, it's the younger generation that's quick to put hands on. Uh, you know, they want to engage in something physical, and it's really unnecessary. Well, they don't talk you know, anymore. There, there's, there's, a, there's a time and place when you need to. Sure. And, you know, I, and that's one thing that, that I'm thankful for, you know, in Montgomery in the old days. If someone put their hands on you, mm-hmm. I mean, they were going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely going to get hurt. And that's when they need it because they put their hands on you. Sure. But you can typically talk to somebody and not have to worry about it. You know, it was rare that we had issues like, you know, of course, the your career criminals, your gangbangers, and just your common street thugs, you're going to have that problem. But for the most part, dealing with the general public is just being courteous and talking to them like a human being. Sure. And that's, that is where it's been lost is they and, and, and Susan, you know this because you've talked to enough cops over the years, you become robotic mm-hmm. and and you know of course you you become so cynical that <laughs> you're just gonna deal with somebody that way and they and it's a lost art on how to effectively communicate to somebody as a human. Sure. And it is an art. The same way policing is a learned craft, so is that verbal communication. It is a learned craft, and you can go a long way. Well, and here's, have here's what's sad, too, about even that, because at least out here, um, you know, there are some groups that just don't understand please and thank you. And right. if you use curse words and stuff at them thanks to body cams, now officers are getting in trouble for their language. So it yeah. makes them even want to talk to people less. And yeah. like I said, they've lost that ability to talk because they text and and email people. And there's and then, of course, COVID and all the other things that shut everybody down. The dumbest thing ever happened. But um, you go, what how do we get people talking to each other again and learning how to communicate without people getting in trouble or even knowing what to say to them? Because out here, they don't really they stop teaching a lot of the fighting stuff here in the academies out here. Yeah. And wanted that kind of gentler kind of a policing, but you still got people that don't know how to communicate. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I did when I was a magistrate, too, was go to the academy and, and talk to them about, you know, how to write a complaint, how to do a complaint. But I'd also talk to them on some basic stuff about just being a police officer. And the one thing I told them is I said, if you take nothing away from this academy, take this. Mm-hmm. And I said, I learned this because I had older guys. Teach me. I said, if you take care of the street, the street will take care of you. Mm-hmm. Once you forget that, you're in trouble. But I said, take care of the street. The street will take care of you. And I said, me, I could walk through some of the roughest projects in Montgomery and not worry about being harmed because I earned the respect of those people by treating them with respect. Sure. And they understood it was just business. Yeah. And you're going to put somebody in jail for something. I've had conversations with guys as I'm putting them in the backseat of the car. They're like, yeah, man, I know. You got to do your job, and you got to know that I'm going to be back out on the street tomorrow. I'm like, hey, whatever. I'll see you again. It's just the way it is. You're going to do what you do. I got to do what I do. Mm-hmm. Nothing personal. It's all business. Sure. And I think they've taken it too personal. 
on both sides. Well, and I think, too, there's they have learned because so many of the cities and counties and stuff are paying out big bucks to people. So now they're almost challenging law enforcement, hoping somebody will hit them or do something because odds are they're going to make a whole lot of money off of it. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, the whole litigious society has become a big deal, too. Sure. That's that, And that that's a failure with courts. You know, you ought to know better. And that that goes to. You know, these cases of guy breaks in my house, going through the skylight, falls through my skylight, breaks his arm when he lands on my coffee table, and then sues me as the homeowner. Well, no, you're breaking into my house. You shouldn't have been going through my skylight. Exactly. How about this? I'll save you all the time. I should have shot you when you came in and not have to worry about it. Exactly. Sure. Do you see anybody, you know, we have Sheriff Mark Lamb out here that people really need to, if you really want to be a good administrator, leader of a law enforcement agency, you, you need to take a, a lesson from his playbook. Is there really anybody in Alabama that you feel like people have respect for at the top of the food chain at any of the agencies? Yeah, I would say uh, Madison County Sheriff Kevin Turner. Okay. Um, is He is a solid quality guy, stand-up guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, when the protests were going around the country and stuff, uh, our mayor wanted to bend the knee to him. The uh, chief of police was wanting to bend the knee. Kevin Turner said, Nuh-uh, not in my county. It is not going to happen. Yep. And he set the standard for it, and everybody followed. I mean, he is he is a good guy, and, and I hope he stays in office. Uh, I, I don't know why he wouldn't, but he is he is quality, and it's because he came up through the ranks. I was you know, going to say. Not, he's not a politician guy. Like some of those sheriffs we saw in Montgomery County, mm-hmm. absolutely, he came up through the ranks. He paid his time. He did, you know, he developed the relationships on the street. Always has been known as a solid professional guy, and then carried that into office. And he does an outstanding job. I think Matt Gentry and Coleman is that way too. Yeah. Yes, I've always yes. had a lot of respect for Matt because he came up yes. through the ranks and stuff too, and. Uh, and I have to I have to brag on my boy over in Cherokee County too, Jeff Shaver. You know, Jeff was a retired trooper and he's been sheriff yes. there for a very long time. And uh, Jeff's Jeff's good people and cares about his people. And I, I think he has a little different take on it than the political sides of like the ones you were talking. I don't even know who the sheriff of Montgomery County is now. I don't either. I don't even know. Well, I thought I knew who the chief was, but I don't remember. Yeah, I, I haven't heard much out of them. I think, I think everybody from my era retired and has moved on to do other things. Or died. Or died, that, that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From a military standpoint, though, what do you where, where do you th- see things? Oh, our United States military is a dumpster fire. Um, and it's sad because I, I have one stationed at Fort Bragg. Um, and, and he texted me the other day and said, you know, I, I, I'm thankful. I went in the army. I'm thankful for everything I'm doing, but we, you know, he said 98% of leadership is horrible Mm -hmm. and the policies that they follow are, you know, just completely contradictory to the values that they want to try to establish as their core values. Wow. And it's, it's a shame. Um, and, you know, if you look at Afghanistan and anybody who was there for any amount of time will tell you it wasn't one war. It was like 
13 or 14 different ones because mm -hmm. some new general always came in and thought he had the best idea and you couldn't maintain any continuity. Sure. It, it just, it, it created problems. You had to undo nonsense. It was done when you were gone. So you came back and spent time undoing it, get it working right, leave and the people behind you would mess it up again. It just, and then you get an administration that pulled that complete goat screw uh, of just, I mean, it, there's no, I don't know that there's a good description for it other than it just being it, it, terrible. I mean, it, that was absolutely, absolutely freaking terrible. You're talking and about the pullout. No yeah. Yeah. Because you spent no how much time there total? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, seven different trips, but I don't know what the total time was. But each time averaged about how long? Is anywhere from six to nine months. And so when you saw what happened over there on the pullout, what was your first thought? I was sick. I bet. Sick, sick to my stomach. Um, because basically that was abandoning people mm -hmm. that had taken care of us. That was abandoning a country that we spent time building up. That was abandoning everything. Yeah. It was, it was basically, it basically it boils down to, Walking in there and going, you know what? I quit. I'm taking my toys. Actually, I'm leaving my toys. Yes. I'm quitting and I'm coming home and I'm leaving my toys behind. Absolutely. And so we turn it over to the very people that we spent time fighting and trying to defeat. We give it to them, yep. arm them, and then knucklehead in the White House is still sending money over there that's going straight to them. So now we're funding them. Sure. And Great what they plan. don't understand is all that money that we were giving to Pakistan that was funding the Pakistan Taliban to fight against us. Now we've just funded a, a whole nother army. Mm -hmm. And if we end up back in the region, we're fighting a well-funded army with our own equipment. With our own equipment. That that's I mean, that, that, that's stupid. Yeah. There's you no know? logic. I mean, that'd be like, that, that would be almost the same as with all of these organized theft rings that are going around, mm -hmm. uh, giving them ballistic vests, batons, a gun, handcuffs and patrol cars, and having the police trying to go stop them sure. when they've got the same equipment. <laughs> Did you have anybody that was still in Afghanistan that you had worked with, Afghanis, that you oh, communicated yeah. with? Do you know anything about how they came out after the pullout? I, I don't. I, I don't. Um, and I've been worried about them. I'm because sure. Because they, one, a, a few of them were high-placed government officials mm -hmm. that were sources for me. And um, one of them was like, I knew his dad from early on in the war and uh, his dad was one of my sources had done a good, a lot of good work. And then he went into the same Afghanistan agency as his father. And he ended up helping me and doing a lot of good stuff. But I, who knows what happened to them? How about translators? Know? Did you have any of those that were still there? Ours, no, ours, Ours were U.S. citizen translators. Okay. So they 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 are here. They they just came back home. Uh, but some of the other ones there, um, yeah, I don't know. It, a lot of them tried to get out on that SIV mm -hmm. visa, uh, and some did. Some fought hard up until the end. Um, I'm trying to think. There was there was one. I worked with a guy. And this has been within the last year, um, a friend of mine who 
he's a Vietnam vet and has good tie and he lives in Louisiana and he had real close ties with a congressman in Louisiana. And so we worked through him and that congressman to get somebody out. But that was like a one-off shot because I don't know who this guy was and what clout he had, but they were able to get this guy because he had most of his paperwork in order. Because when I heard about people like prior special forces, people sneaking back in, trying to get people, I really saw your face all over that. <laughs> uh, my face was almost all over that. I had some friends doing that and and I would have, I mean, I know. I'm surprised you did. Real close. <laughs> <laughs> it would not have surprised me for you to have said, yeah, I was in and out of there several times because that would have been right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about law enforcement and the mental wellness stuff going on in Alabama because as, as sad as it is to say, I have not kept up with it like I probably should have um, since I left 11 years ago. You know, I hear bits and pieces and stuff, but um, what are you hearing on Mental wellness for officers and families. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we had one get killed here, very sad, um, and it was all in this one. It was kind of two back to back. So let me start first. One, one of Kevin Turner's guys mm-hmm. was killed. Um, he was part of the stack team, which is their counter narcotics team. And I think the guy that killed him, at least from what I heard, should have never been out on the street. Of course. And I don't know if it was a revenge killing and he sought him out, but anyway, killed him. Then you had a uniform guy with the police department. They respond to a call. This guy is out after shooting two people at a business. Uh, He shoots his wife. Call. It gets called in. He is wearing body armor, has uh, an M4-style platform, and then a 7.62-style platform, multiple loaded magazines, body armor, and he's waiting on And, of course, they go to the door. First round catches the first officer in the head, so he's dead immediately. Other officer takes one in the stomach and one in the arm, um, and... You know, fortunately, and this was at an apartment complex, fortunately, one of the people living there uh, wanted to help this officer, and she ended up dragging him to safety into her apartment, I think is what happened. Good for her. But there, there were people there outside videotaping, basically telling the officers, hey, this is what you get. Keep coming. This is what you're going to get. Wow. And a lot of them a lot of them had a hard time dealing with that, dealing with the shooting, dealing with the death. And these are guys that are, I mean, they're combat veterans. They were infantry guys. Mm-hmm. that had been in Iraq and Afghanistan and came back and became cops still hadn't dealt with wartime stuff. Mm-hmm. And now you're dealing with stuff on the street and they're younger. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a shock because you, you expect it when you go overseas, you sure. know, you know, I'm going to foreign country, bullets are going to fly all the time. We'll probably lose somebody, but you don't think about it here. And you don't think about it in a city where at one time that city had more PhDs per capita than anywhere in the, else in the nation. Oh, so you right. would think it's, it's, you know, it's a very smart community. You're not going to have these problems, mm-hmm. but it's here and it's not being dealt with effectively. They're not allowing the officers to do their job effectively because it fits in with the whole narrative of the rest of the country. Yep. Um, 
Did so the public just, rally, though, overall, did they rally behind the officer's family and the department? Uh, I don't know. Um, I'll have to ask some friends of mine to see kind of how that looked. It doesn't seem like it It was like it was in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. it, it just it doesn't have that same feel to me that it that it used to. Now, I do know that his funeral procession, he he was buried in Coleman. Okay. And they drove they drove from here to Coleman and there was thousands of police cars and every agency along the way jumped in. You know, and that's it, it's very impressive and it's touching and I think the public needs to come out and see that. Mm-hmm. And and needs to support that, but it's also sad at the same time because if you've never been in one of those and it's your first time, it's pretty, it's heart-wrenching to be in that. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I still remember J.R. Ward. Yes. Of course, I also remember his because I sat there laughing and joking with him an hour before he was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to show up at the church and his son standing there saying, Mom, why, why, why are all these, why are all dad's friends coming here? Yep. You know, and he couldn't get it. And, and I think that the mental health is the same thing it's always been. Mm-hmm. It is cops don't like to talk. Don't like to talk to anybody. You, you'll talk to fellow officers, but you're not going to talk to anybody else. Right. Because you think nobody else gets it. Sure. Nobody's going to understand. Nobody's going to get you. And I really think, and, and, you know, some of the older guys may agree with me. As you get older, you realize uh, there's no harm in talking. And I probably should talk it makes me feel better to get it out rather than keeping it in back to Susan's old dumpster analogy, <laughs> the garbage can, can, garbage can. can. Yes. Um, and, and I think for people that have never heard you say that it is an absolute fact that you keep that stuff in. It affects everything in your life. There yep. is nothing safe from it because you, you build up resentment, and bitterness that turns into hatred and it's just it it eats you from the inside out people don't see it right you got to talk about it well but and here's the hard part and this has kind of been our message uh around and again winder the shield has now labeled what we do as stress coaching because we say it's not therapy it's education um but and i i get tired of hearing all over the country yeah it's time to change the culture the law enforcement culture needs to change and be more accepting of of mental health, but the problem is, is the mental health world has to change in order yeah. for them to accept it. Because if it's going to be, if it could cost you your job, you're not going to talk to them. And yeah. until that changes, and then there's so much misleading information, you know, they'll put out there, this is 100% confidential. Well, that's misleading because confidentiality is a legal term with three exceptions. The three exceptions never go away, even when they say yeah. 100%. Yeah. And, and it doesn't take but one losing his gun or her gun and job for it to shut everybody down. So it's time for the, the mental wellness side to make changes, not the culture, because we ain't going to change the culture until it's safe. And that's why we have so many that come to us because we don't keep notes and records. We don't say it's confidential. We say it's anonymous and it is hundred percent anonymous. Yeah. And that's, and that's a good point when you talk about taking your guns away. I mean, you're talking about, and I'm not a, I'm not a gun nut, 
Um, I mean, I have very nice guns, and I was gonna say you I, own your fair share, my friend. I have, I have plenty. Um, I mean, I could defend a fixed position by myself for quite a long time. <laughs> so you better roll deep. <laughs> but it, it's you, you don't want to lose that, and even even with like the VA and and filing for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very careful in how I wrote that up and got denied and I had people review it and they're like, dude, you, you didn't even tell half of what's wrong with you. And I said, because these knuckleheads will put me on some list. Yep. And then, you know, I and I told him, I said, I'll use something simple, you know, a $2,000 shotgun that I used to duck hunt with will be gone mm-hmm. because they'll tell me I'm not safe to have this, you know, even though I'm out killing waterfowl, yep. Oh, you're a danger to yep. society. Well, I'm not. Um, so it, I, I can understand that because I did it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tried to be real n- polite and nice and go, yeah, you know, I'm I'm probably not as I should be. And it, I know it's PTSD and, you know, you guys should feel sorry for me. And they're like, denied, you get nothing wrong. Well, it's like in law enforcement, you know, just because an officer tries to medically retire with post-traumatic stress, we call it injury, not disorder. Usually the ones we've dealt with, it's because the vest is the triggering thing for them. Yeah. Just because they can't put a vest on and be a cop does not mean they should not have the ability to maintain their Second Amendment rights. Exactly. And that's the slippery slope here. And that's something that really hasn't been resolved very well or figured out out here because we have some that with some agencies that have retired post shootings and stuff with post-traumatic stress disorder, but they will get their Leosa rights to carry. And then we have others that do it and they don't get their right to carry or they get denied a medical retirement for PTSD and then they get denied for the Leosa. And you go, he got denied. Why, what are you, what are you tying this to? Well, he has PTSD, but you denied him the medical. And so it, I'm waiting. Here's what I'm waiting for. You, you know me well enough to know how much I'm going to enjoy this. I'm waiting for the officer that has been in a shooting or two, puts in pre-20 years, so say 17 years on the job, not eligible to retire, puts in for medical, for post-traumatic stress disorder. Three psychologists say he has it or she has it. The IME for the city or county or whoever comes back and says, no, they don't have it. And now the officer walks back in and says, okay, give me my gun and badge back. I want to go back to work. Yeah. yeah. Now what are they going to do? Somebody goes, well, they'll put them up for a fit for duty. Well, okay. But if they come back not fit for duty, you got to do, you got to give them the medical. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't thought this stuff out. Well, and part of the problem and I don't know how you change this, is the negative stigma that goes along with, and I, I won't put the D in there, but the PTS. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, and I haven't done research into it, I do not believe, nor have I seen, where somebody who's worked in law enforcement or with the military that has PTS mm-hmm. has gone out and done a mass shooting, right. has done anything like that, or is an otherwise violent person. Right. You know, it's it's 
we're comfortable with violence, mm-hmm. but we're not going to actively or proactively create violence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I'll defend others and myself when needed. Yep. It may be excessive to some, but that's just the way I've been trained. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to go looking for it. You know, it's just it's not something I'm going to look for. So when someone says I have post-traumatic stress, well, yeah. And here's why. Uh-huh. No one sits down and looks at you take a kid who's 21 years old. He gets sworn in, puts a badge on his chest. Within two weeks of being on the job, he gets shot at for the first time in his life. Yep. The week after that, he has to kill somebody. He's still 21. Not long after that, he shows up at a home where a security guard has shot his five-year-old, his three-year-old, his two-year-old, his 18-month-old, his wife, and himself. And the three-year-old did not die and sat and watched TV for 24 hours before the neighbors came over and found him. Yep. You tell me something. Does that 21-year-old look the same 30 years after that? Nope. No, because they kept going in a career where they even saw worse. Sure. And and there is no mind on this planet that can take that and be, okay, I'm okay. You know, I walk around, I'm okay. That, that's It's impossible. Well, I don't care. A, a group of psychiatrists could sit in the room and tell me, well, you need to manage that better. No. <laughs> where have you seen anything like that in your life? You know, how yep. many dead bodies have you smelled? Because that smell does not go away and you don't forget it. That's right. Well, and here's what we tell them, because... The problem, and I just had a meeting with AZ Post here last week. The problem is we train law enforcement how to, when to, where to, why to. But we don't talk about what is normal after they see and do these things. Yeah, And that's something we have officers now, combat Marine, retired from Phoenix, uh, ambushed. He and his sergeant shot and killed the guy. And... Uh, he does travel with me around and we've been to Hyde in Wisconsin and we've been to Memphis and all over. And, and Mark stands up in front and talks about what happened to him afterwards, some paranoia that went on, the anger that went on, the things that the mental health people approached from a, you shot and killed that guy. That wasn't his issue. His issue was that a woman got killed before he got there. She got executed basically. And so he stands up and tells them, you know what, if you have these things, if you're involved in critical incidents, you have all this stuff in your garbage can that Susan talks about, um, it's, it's normal, and here's something you can do, and here's somebody you can talk to and not be judged and not worry about losing your job and that kind of stuff. Because when we can start to do that, it lowers that paranoia, it lowers the anger and frustration, which is what's leading to sleep deprivation and then suicide. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, you, you kind of touched on it there is learning how to deal with the frustration. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is learning to deal with the emotion. And And I'm saying all this because this is all things that I have started learning within the last 10 months and properly identifying emotions, correctly identify or dealing with those emotions and then correctly expressing them Mm -hmm. in a healthy manner. None of us knew how to do that. You know, you don't, and sometimes frustration comes out as anger when it's just frustration. And that's sometimes it's frustration 
the frustration turns into anger because the frustration manifests itself in hurt Mm -hmm. and fear that we're not going to say. And, um, you know, the, the fear is not you're afraid of being harmed or something like that. The fear is I don't handle things right. And it's completely goes against my, you know, it's outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And so I can't do it. And and then you get frustrated and you get mad and that comes out and people look at you like, whoa, you need to settle down. Well, and that too is where we teach anger is never a primary emotion. One of the things yeah. I teach in the academies, you walk up to an angry person and go, why are you angry? You're going to piss them off even more. But mm-hmm. if you ask who or what are you afraid of, who or what are you hurt by, what are you sad or frustrated over? They can come out of an emotional state and identify those things that you're asking now. And yeah. that leads to people being able to resolve issues. Yeah. Because yeah. then there's a level of understanding, which is why all of our stress coaches are people who've done it, been married to it, raised by it, or given birth to it. Joelle has a great way and ability to be able to relate to teenage and adult children of law enforcement because he was one. Yeah, yeah. And he speaks their language, not language from a book that he sat behind a desk and studied, but from reality. Yeah. And when you can start to do that again, this is about normalizing. I tell them every class I walk in, y'all are crazy, but you're not mentally ill. There is a difference, huge difference. (laughs) And, And when they start to question themselves, thinking they're mentally ill then that makes them bottle up even more and not want to tell anybody. And you can only maintain that for so long. And yeah. when, but when they're talking to somebody that's not just sitting with a PhD, or we try to give them tools and things that they can do away from our office. I mean, I work seven days a week as it is. I, I don't need to create things they got to come in my office to do. Yeah, And yeah. when we can give them things to do at home, we're giving them control back of their own lives, emptying the garbage can, physiologically taking care of themselves, getting them back sleeping better. Things start to turn around when you do that. But if all we're looking at from the mental health side is I got to diagnose you, I got to put you on the right axis so I get paid by the insurance company, and now we're making you a victim of this is permanent. And it was funny, the first time I talked for Border Patrol, I had a guy just like you. Matter of fact, reminded me of you. And uh, I said, it wasn't a disorder. It's an injury. And he came up on the break and he goes, yeah, I didn't like you said that. And I said, are you military? He goes, yeah, special forces. And I said, all right. I said, are you still in? He goes, no, I retired. Okay, you applied to Border Patrol. Yeah. They hired you. Yeah. Finished an academy? Yeah. They gave you a gun. Yeah. Is that your wife with you in the training? Yeah. Pretty good marriage? Yeah, 20-something years. I said, where's your disorder? And he looked at me and he goes, touche. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, from a standpoint of military disability ratings and stuff, all for it. But when we're making victims out of people, and Todd, one of the saddest things I heard out here was a young officer in a shooting. He calls me two, maybe two and a half years after, and he told me he had been part of a group here in the Valley. And I said, I don't want to duplicate anything. Tell me what they did that was helpful. And here's what I made him say it twice. And he said, it's nice to know I'm not the only one who will never be any better than I am today. I almost lost it. And I said, well, at Under the Shield, we think everybody can be better than they are today. 
and he never called back because they've made a victim out of him and he wants to stay in that place of being a victim. And that's what, that's a, yeah, we can't afford that. Because we're not victims. No. Not a victim, not a victim of anything. It's, it, it goes back to that story I was telling you. You, you see so much and you deal with the worst of society every day. It's going to get to you. Mm-hmm. And you're not a victim. You're just dealing with things that the average human does not. And yes, you're right. We have to be a little crazy because who's going to run into gunfire when everybody else runs away? Yeah. Not a sane person. Right. That's it. And so we have to do a better job. And that was what I was excited about. AZ Post out here was like, wow, Susan, you have a whole concept here of what you've been trying to teach. (laughs) It only took me 31 years to get somebody to understand that. I'm like, hey, guys, (laughs) I ain't getting any younger. Um, But the reality is, is there's a lot we can do from a training perspective, but people have to be receptive that there's a Maybe there's a better mousetrap here. We're not saying we're getting rid of all the mousetraps, but maybe there's a better mousetrap here that's going to make families healthier because we train families because they're the first line of defense. Supervisors are the second line of defense. They got to know what to look for because we're sh- everybody's short-staffed. I'm sure y'all are out there. Yeah. Nobody wants to do yeah. this job. And, yeah. and people like yourself and myself, we can understand that, but we also know the need of them being out there because it's the essential element in our society. And that's, that's the part that people like yourself can get out and actually do training and talk to these young ones and say, you know what? It's okay. If you're struggling, it's not okay to struggle and not try to find somebody. There are resources. You give them under the shields number. We never ask their name. We don't have their phone number when they call us. Um, but it takes people like yourself who have that background that they look and go, man, that's a badass. And he's telling me it's okay for me to not be okay. And there are places that I can go, things I can do that will make me better. Yeah, That has to happen from your generation of policing and military. And that's when we begin to make a difference. And so, you know, we're hoping to get back into Alabama a little bit. I'd love to come back over there and and do some training, and maybe the administrations have changed enough that they don't put up the crosses in the front of their departments when they hear Susan Simmons is coming that direction. <laughs> and so that, that's out here. Um, but, you know, any any way that you see that we can get in there and help, one thing COVID did really good for us was this acceptance of seeing people over Zoom, because that that is not something I'm a fan of. I, you know, I, I do it when they're out of state. But that is more acceptable these days. So it's made it easier to reach out to people in different parts of the country. Uh, Joelle actually had a client. I was afraid he might not speak to me again. But her uh, dad was a, he was LAPD at one time and several places. Wound up a cop in Colorado and he had heard me speak. And he and his wife reached out. Their daughter, who was in her early 20s, yeah. Well, yeah. Had gone to just up and left, didn't tell him, up and left and went to the Ukraine to document the war in the Ukraine. This, oh, little, yeah. this little blonde haired, blue eyed, cute little thing going to the Ukraine. <laughs> and it, so when the parents called me, we said, yeah. So Joel gets on with her, I guess, on Zoom or whatever. Um, I was really surprised to hear Amazon doesn't wasn't delivering in the Ukraine. That was a shame because we wanted to send yeah. some stuff to her. <laughs> 
And uh, so we've we've had international clients, and she is actually somebody who was on our podcast with her boyfriend, who was I guess it was kind of like the equivalent of special forces or Marines or something yeah. for the Ukraine. Had them on. He was injured pretty badly. Um, but, yeah, so it's become a lot more acceptable for us to do things like this. And maybe one day I'll actually recruit Todd to actually be a stress coach. He just doesn't know it. This is just phase one of the brainwashing and the <laughs> and the stuff. He just doesn't hey, know. I know what a recruitment looks like. <laughs> I see how this is working. Yeah, I'm going to call Stacy later. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, Tell her expect yeah. my phone call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as we wrap this up, you know, first let me say to you, thank you for all your service because you, you have been a serv- public servant as long as I've known you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's our in-house audience here. Um, and, you know, it's always been an honor to be a friend, to call you a friend, to call you a colleague. We had some good times <laughs> teaching college. We we would we'd spin people up that weren't part of our department. And it's because I like the practical joke. And I was hoping to hear the story of a certain practical joke. <laughs> we'll talk about it off air. <laughs> I don't know that statute of limitations runs on things like that. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, like I said, we may not talk as often as I wish we could. Both of us are busy and go in a hundred directions, but you are family. You and Stacey are family. You will always be family, uh, to us and to me and everybody here at Under the Shield. And so any way you see that we can help, because I know you're still pretty connected to law enforcement over there. Um, we let the hose draggers or the slab savers, we got a new name for firefighters. They're slab savers. Oh, okay. I, I had never heard that before till a podcast. I've never I heard was that in. either. That's a good one. <laughs> it is. And, uh, but anyway, we can help over there. Always give our information. You give my cell number out. You give whatever they need. And uh, so as we wrap it up here, I just want to remind our audience, too, that Under the Shield is here for you 24-7. This includes families. This is military first responders. Sorry, doctors, lawyers, accountants, garbage men, whatever. Y'all go find somebody else. Um, this is our whole population. And if you call 855-889-2348, that's our 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-days number. And if you hit extension one, we don't even have your phone number. So if you get disconnected on the call, you're going to have to call us back because we truly adhere to our whole philosophy that everything at Under the Shield is 100% anonymous. You can call me on my cell number. Here's the thing. Text during the daytime. Uh, Call at night. That number is 334-324-3570. If you don't want to talk to me, you want to talk to a cop, you want to talk to a firefighter, we paramedic, dispatchers, everybody. We have stress coaches all over, even have two in Canada. Um, You're not going to hurt my feelings. I'll be happy to get you to that stress coach that is uh, a real true peer to you. But please know we never report. We have people suicidal calling us in our offices, and we deal with it uh, because we know this is not about mental illness. Uh, Joelle, you got anything you want to throw in there also? Um, yeah, I mean, you you helped me. So, you know, when I went through things with my dad, I, I mean, I can't say enough for just everything that Under the Shield does. Um, it's been an honor to work with the clients I've got to work with. Um, like, as you say, you know, there's, there's purpose in our pain and yes. <clears throat> just something else for you, Todd, this isn't part of the recruitment or anything, but, uh, <laughs> purpose in our pain. And, uh, 
you know, it's 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 definitely helped me, but it's really nice coming out the other end and then be able to help others. Um, but yeah, if any anyone needs help, my phone number 480-316-7648. Feel free to text me, call me. Um, if you do call, like Susan says, leave a message or text us because mm-hmm. uh, we get calls from all sorts of different places like Ukraine, for example. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, But no, it's truly been an honor to uh, get to work with Under the Shield. Yeah. And you'll never hear us talk about just get over something. We help people go through things. And that's what we do as coaches. So uh, please reach out to us 24-7. Again, families, we can't uh, emphasize that enough. We appreciate all the sacrifices that are made out there, and the family is usually the last one thanked, and we know they make more sacrifices probably than anybody else. So reach out to us here at Under the Shield, and we hope you'll come back next week. But God bless you. God bless your families in this great nation that we live in. Take care, stay safe, and come back to visit us.